This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of where, where it got its most fame. <laughs> Not as a hunting round, but as a law enforcement round. Hello, everyone. Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Out. Doors podcast at you again, and I've got several corrections and some good advice from our listeners, um, and also some book recommendations. In my last podcast, someone asked me for a list of books that he could uh, be reading because he's not able to hunt this season, poor guy. So I uh, pulled a few of them out, and I realized I can't grab them all or we'll be here all day talking about some great hunting books. So I went a little bit heavy on Africa because we just got back about a month ago from a safari. And, of course, that stirs up all the feelings one gets about an African safari, and those are absolutely wonderful. So we'll we'll discuss some of those. But before we do, I have a few corrections and uh, comments to read from our fans. So this is from Jason S. He says, when I was a new hunter and shooter 25 years ago, unquestionably the best for the money, the best gun for the money was the shotgun with a slug barrel. You could hunt squirrels and rabbits with birdshot, turkeys with high brass and extra full choke, and reasonably ranged deer with a rifled slug barrel. In the knobs of Kentucky, it's a reasonable decision. With guns such as the Thompson Center Encore and the multiple of uppers for an AR-style rifle, do you feel the old shotgun still holds the same versatility value and appeal as in years past? Wow. Those, yeah, actually, Jason, it does. I mean, I think as much as I love rifles because of their precision, you've got to admit that a shotgun with all the things that you talked about really is the most versatile. And I've done um, videos on the most versatile rifle, but the shotgun really does beat it because you're not shooting any pheasants out of the air with a rifle. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure some people have done it, but it's not legal and it's not safe. So a uh, shotgun will definitely give you that advantage. So yeah, you can use light loads of birdshot to take everything from doves and quail to heavier loads with bigger pellets for geese and turkeys. 
put your slugs in and you're ready for deer and elk. Heck, you could take moose with it. Good bear protection. Yeah, it's just an incredibly versatile tool. So if someone is on a budget looking for a good do-it-all firearm, shotgun's certainly the way to go. And I would recommend 12-gauge, much as I love 20 gauges and 28 gauges, I have to admit the 12 gauge is the most versatile. So there you go. Thanks for bringing that up, Jason. Now this is from Neto161. I have shoulder pain. And one thing that really helps me is I tuck my elbow against my side instead of having my elbow out. It causes my muscles to flex enough that it's like having a really thick recoil pad. I can shoot all day that way. Well, that's a good point. Um, I've always been the elbow out kind of guy. Um, I sort of learned that way back in the day. They actually taught that in the military. I see now, though, with the uh, new military rivals, well, new. God, I don't know if you can call the Vietnam War with the M16 new, but <clears throat> the 223, essentially, 5.56 NATO, those little auto loaders don't have hardly any recoil. And if you tuck your arm in, someone else wrote in and said, less of a target. If your arm's out like this and your enemy misses you and hits your elbow, you're done. you're in big trouble. So keep it tucked in. You make a smaller target. And guys can move pretty quickly this way. And I don't know. I've just never enjoyed shooting like that, but seems to work. And certainly seems to work here for Neto161. So thanks for that tip, Neto. Now, this is Aiden, and he writes... Oh, I said something about boar snakes in a previous program, and he said, I recommend to take a boar snake. After you shoot, just run it through a few times to remove anything big and then hit the chamber with some rem oil, and you should be good to go. An old toothbrush to the chamber, maybe, and a semi or auto action on brakes and levers, and I don't know what all that is. But, yeah, essentially, he's saying just give it a light cleaning, and that's one of the nice things he likes about the boar snake. As I mentioned in that previous broadcast, it's not ideal for a real thorough cleaning of your barrel, but just to keep things, get the worst of it out and keep things smooth and functioning may keep your accuracy right on up there with minimal stress and effort, so... Recommendation there from Aiden for the boar snake. <clears throat> now, here's one from one of our patrons on Patreon. And he's been telling me he's looking forward to his first pronghorn hunt. He's heading to Wyoming next week for my first pronghorn hunt. What is your favorite way to process the meat? As a general rule, I usually make smoked sausage, cutlets to fry and grind for burgers and chili. We love to process and cook. We have a deep Cajun and Texas background. So... I'm looking for what you think is uh, the best compliment for antelope's texture and taste. <clears throat> and what I told this gentleman is I just keep it really simple. I find pronghorn meat, contrary to what many think, to be extremely mild and delicate. And it's always tender. I don't know that I've ever had a pronghorn that was anything but tender. I have had a couple that tasted terrible because they were either gut shot or chased around and then left out in the heat and they weren't properly dressed out in the field and they got the oil from their cheek glands onto the knives and probably their fingers and that got onto the meat and ugh, that is pretty disgusting. But if you shoot an antelope unaware and make a nice clean kill on it so it's not being chased all over, it gets this adrenaline up and gets a bit of uh, lactic acid built up, for instance, the, and then skin it out nice and cleanly, keep away from that oil, and then cool that meat down. Boy, is it ever good. And it is so tender and mild. So I recommend that you treat it like any 
rare game meat, very little fat in it. So you have to do things rare. And all I do, we cut steaks off the loins and we either grill them or some other recipe, but rare or close to rare. My wife's not a real rare fan, but she can go with medium rare. So do that. And the flavor itself is just so good. I don't find that enhancements are really worth my time. It's sort of overpowers the meat. But, you know, if you like the Cajun recipes and lots of spices and such, suit yourself. But just don't think that you need to overpower the meat with some other flavors because it is not as bad tasting as too many people make it out to be. Um, actually, quite the opposite. It's our favorite. Right behind uh, doll sheep, bighorn sheep. Those are a little hard to come by. <laughs> Pronghorn's a little more accessible. So we really like those. So yeah, good luck on your hunt. And uh, let me know how it goes. Now, this one is from Wild Bush and Grit. And I don't see what video is he referring to. He says, great video. So that's always a great start. <laughs> oh, he's talking about recoil. I recently did a, v uh, a video on my regular channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors, on recoil and how to tame it, how to control it, and shoot without fear of recoil. So he's got another idea here. He says, shooting seated at the range is different from standing. No ranges in my area permit standing shots. Beginners get horrible recoil, and as a result, they develop bad habits. And several people responded to this. I saw that in my uh, on a YouTube channel, and they said they couldn't believe that you weren't allowed to stand up and shoot at a shooting range. But apparently that's the regulation where he is. But he's got an excellent point. If you stand up to shoot, you're going to feel a lot less recoil when you get on a bench. And in my estimation, too many commercial benches, especially at shooting ranges, are too low. And it forces you to hunch over. So you're really pushing yourself down almost as if you're prone. And then you're not able to rock back from your waist or your legs and you feel all the recoil on your shoulder. And if you go too far forward, of course, that puts the heel of the butt up against your shoulder and less against your chest. So you're narrowing the contact point and that emphasizes the recoil as well. So this gentleman has an excellent point. Stand up with big recoiling rifles and you've got proper stock fit, better contact with the pad, both on your cheek and your shoulder, and it really reduces felt recoil, and you're able to rock back, take the punch, so to speak. So good tip there. I'm just uh, sorry, Wild Bush, that your range doesn't allow that. I think you need to have a talk with those folks and understand why the heck they're not allowing that, because it seems kind of silly to me. All right, now about these books. Gentleman asked about what some good titles would be to read, and I went kind of heavy with Africa here, but boy, most of us have heard of Capstick, and he writes really entertaining stuff. Folks who knew him or spent time in Kenya when he was there said that he really wasn't much of a hunter, and they even questioned whether he was a licensed PH, but it hardly matters when you're reading this because his stories are so well told, and they're so exciting, whether they're enhanced Completely made up, I don't know, but boy, are they fun to read. So if you want to get Africa Safari Fever, Capstick is a great way to do it. Now, a classic is Horn of the Hunter by Rourke. And he's got another one that you probably heard of, uh, Use Enough Gun. But boy, I highly recommend both of these books. They really capture Africa. He and Capstick and Hemingway would not just 
tell you the story or get the details, but they captured the essence, the sights and sounds and smells and the feel of Africa. It's the kind of read that really makes you want to go. It just puts you right there. Now, a little more historical fact stuff is this White Hunter's book by Herney. Brian Herney's kind of written a history of professional hunting in Africa. Really fascinating. He goes way back to the start when when they were just getting going with this stuff and the sorts of firearms they used back in the day for taking the really big stuff and how ineffective they were and how many times people got squashed and worked their way up and figured things out. It's really got all the details in here, so you might want to pick that one up. Then, of course, there's Hemingway's Green Hills of Africa, a classic. I've read it several times, and I'll probably read it again because it always puts you right in there. Now, here's one that's not on Africa, but he does have some Africa books, too. This is Teddy Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt. And this is his uh, reminiscences when he was a rancher in North Dakota after his first wife died. And I think his mother, like the day after or something, it was quite a tragedy. He was really bummed out, depressed, and he went out to North Dakota to live the rough life on a ranch and found himself and renewed his spirit. And uh, just a great tale of sort of the last days of the bison. He went on a bison hunt across the line into Montana. He was in the badlands of North Dakota, elk and mule deer, and had some encounters with some outlaws that he arrested, chased them down a river. It's really quite an adventure. I think you'll enjoy that. A little more contemporary, Jack O'Connor from the middle of the 20th century. I think most of us have heard about Jack and his writings. He was the uh, gun and hunting writer for Outdoor Life magazine, and he was one of the revered masters of the craft. And he has all kinds of good, solid advice without much of any kind of hype. He just tells it like it is, all about cartridges and rifles and bullets and hunting and how to do it. All that good information in Jack's The Hunting Rifle. Now, here's one that is not about hunting, but I think it behooves every outdoorsman to understand this basic philosophy of conservation. Aldo Leopold Sand County Almanac is an absolute classic. I wrote, I read it back in college, and it really set me on the path towards conservation and conservation hunting. I sort of had a natural bent in that direction anyway. And when I read this, he's quite poetic. And again, he really captures the essence of what so many of us feel but cannot articulate, why we love it so much. Again, the sense and the, the sounds and the look and the feel. Why is it that we're just so drawn to, for instance, goose music or the bugle of an elk or the howl of a coyote? And why do we need to be out there in the cold and the wet and the wind and anything else just to absorb this wild country in which we hunt? It just really speaks to the spirit of the hunt. And I think that's why most of us, if not all of us, are out there. And then quickly, back to Africa. This is a little bit of a downer here, a little bit depressing, because it's African Twilight by Robert Jones. And he spent a lot of time over there. And he tells it like it is, which is overpopulation of humans is destroying Africa. And it's just inevitable. The more people you have utilizing the range that used to be for wildlife, the less you're going to have for wildlife. They're not going to allow lions to eat their livestock. They're not going to allow elephants to trample their corn crops and their gardens. And all of that stuff happens over there. 
Uh, these people are still, uh, many of them are still living in small farms and villages. They're living in houses that they literally build by hand out of sticks and twigs, thatch roofs, mud in the walls. It's a tough existence, and they cannot tolerate wild animals taking what they need for firewood and crops, and they, they don't grow a lot of crops, but the ones they do are critical to their survival. So they're the folks who are really putting the pressure on the elephants. Not so much the uh, the rhinos, although they don't appreciate rhinos charging through either, but it's the commercial poachers who are ruining that stuff. To a large degree, uh, elephant ivory, but they've kind of solved that one. There are really too many elephants in many of the national parks because they're such a big domineering animal. They can really destroy habitat too. But a combination of Western colonial thought telling Africans how they need to live their lives plus increasing human population is just really leading to the decline of African wildlife or African twilight, as Jones puts it. Uh, still a great read, and I think it gives us a little bit of hope. As depressing as it is with all the facts about how bad it has gotten, I am seeing some pretty encouraging happenings over there along the lines of, oh, say, one of my favorite places in Mozambique, uh, Zambezi Delta Safaris in Kutata 11, in which they have restored wildlife from virtually extirpated to saturated. And the classic example is buffalo. They counted around 1,200 buffalo in that area before they started managing it as a hunting block. And now they have more than 25,000 buffalo in there. At the same time, they're hunting them every year, and they are providing local villagers with something like 30,000 tons of wild game meat, which of course means there's very little poaching going on because they don't have to poach for bush meat. They're being supplied by the hunters, the rich Western hunter who comes over there for his trophies, but that is extremely tightly controlled. They shoot less than 2% of the annual production of those herds. So they're really not impacting the populations negatively. They're only shooting males, trying to shoot the older ones who've done their breeding already. Just the whole program works. It's a sustainable use. And I've seen that in several other countries, Zambia, Zimbabwe, uh, South Africa, Namibia. Those are the countries that still have abundant wildlife where they are managed for trophy hunting. It's just the opposite of what the story is in a popular media. So you might want to Look into that. I mean, it just gives me a lot of hope for Africa. And that same program, I think, could spill over into the rest of the world and work beautifully. So now the team has given me a computer. And after last show, when I dropped it, they're hoping that doesn't happen again. <laughs> so let's see what they have here for questions. Someone is asking about a 7mm WSM. This is Dr. White Bass 87. What is your opinion on the 7mm Winchester short magnum compared to the 270 Remington magnum? Well, my first opinion is I don't know anything about a 270 Remington magnum. So I think you've got a little bit of confusion here. Do you mean a 270 Weatherby magnum or do you mean the 270 Winchester short magnum? Those are the only 270 magnums that I'm aware of. So let us assume, well, let me think here. You know, the 270 Weatherby Magnum is maybe 100 feet per second faster than the WSM version. 
So between the 7 millimeter WSM and the 270 WSM, those are the same case. One just used a 28 caliber bullet. The other is a 27. Very little difference between them. Pick either one. If you want to shoot a little bit heavier bullet, you'll go with the 7 because you can go up to 175, maybe even 180 grain bullet. In the 270, you're probably topping out with 150 grain because when they came out with the 270 WSM in around 2000, they uh, did not give it fast twist. They stuck with the 1 in 10 that's used in the traditional 270. And that means about the longest or heaviest bullet you're going to be able to shoot is 150 grain, unless you go to a round nose, because then you can go shorter. It's the length of the bullet that determines how much rifling twist rate you need to stabilize it, not the weight. We always think it's the weight just because in the old days, bullets were pretty much bullets. Unless they were flat-nosed or round-nosed, you were going to end up with the same length overall. So 150 grain is considered to be a long or heavy bullet that needs to be stabilized with faster twist rifling. These days with long boat tails and secant ogives and sharp noses, our bullets are getting really long and they might not weigh 150 grains, but they'll be too long to stabilize in the old twists. So both the 7 and the 270 have that same twist rate problem. Not really a big problem in the 7s, um, but the 270 sort of limits you. But the 270 WSM shoots so fast that I find that its 150 grain loads were kind of the uh, the sleekest, highest BC bullet you can get in a 270 at 150 grains. It'll still stabilize. And because of its extra velocity, it'll hang right there with the 6.8 Western, which is a new 270 that lets you shoot heavier, longer bullets because it has a faster twist rifling, one in seven and a half, one in eight, down in that range. But boy, out to about five, 600 yards, the old 270 WSM hangs right with it by using a 150 grain bullet. So if you were meaning there, Mr. White Bass, the 270 Weatherby Magnum, um, just kind of the same story, but add about 100 feet per second velocity to the 270 WSM. But now, of course, you're going to be using a standard length magazine rifle. If you're shooting a bolt action rifle, for instance, and you got a Weatherby, it's going to be the 30-06 length, 3.3 inches versus the 2.8 inches out of the short actions in the WSM. So, you know, it's just, do you want short? Do you want standard? No big deal there. I think people make way too much of that short versus long action business. So either one of them are going, any of those three are going to do just fine for anything you're hunting in North America. And I include moose in that, probably not the biggest bears and stuff, you know, but for, I assume you're hunting all the uh, common deer and elk and probably maybe a moose or a sheep or something like that. Great cartridges, every one of them. You really can't quibble. You're going to do well with any of them. All right, Jeremy. Jeremy asks, hey, Ron, I'm hoping your team will see this question. Well, we just did. <laughs> they gave it to me. Hey, I'm wondering about the uh, 6.8 Western. Well, isn't that a coincidence? I was just talking about that. The ballistics seem to be ideal for most hunters, and I'm wondering why it seems that there's a complete radio silence on the cartridge. Do you think it's going to ever take off? Huh. Well, I haven't noticed complete radio silence, although recently, you know, it sort of does its splash when it first comes out. And all the magazines cover it, and everybody gets all excited. And then what's going to happen next? So I think it depends on how much, probably how much Winchester and Browning push it. That's their baby. I think they cranked it out there to compete with the 6.5 PRC because those two are remarkably close in both 
look, shape, powder capacity, and everything else. I think the 6.8 has an advantage, much as I love the 6.5 PRC. And that advantage is it can shoot the heavier bullets. You might get up to 156 grain bullet in the PRC, which is nothing to sneeze at. But that 6.8, you can get upwards of 170 grain bullets, which is what a lot of folks shooting the old 270 Winchester wish they could find, but they won't stabilize unless you get a custom barrel with faster twist. So the fast twist in the Browning and Winchester rifles for 6.8 are what make it shine. And that's what it was designed for. It just seems like, gosh, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but my impression is that Winchester and to a degree Browning have never quite had the marketing uh, effect that Hornady has. I don't know what it is about Hornady, but when they come out with a new round, uh, it just seems to take off. They just seem to do everything right with their marketing or their advertising or something. But the cartridge itself, I think, is definitely worth having around. I think it should take off. But marketing, I mean, it just comes down to perceptions, uh, public perception, and marketing, and whether or not folks think that it's it's worth having. I certainly think it is. So fingers crossed on this, baby. If I were picking up a 270 today, if I were a young man just getting started, and I didn't have the nostalgic feel I have for the old 270, I would get the 6.8 Western. Uh, that would do me for just anything and everything. All right, good one there, Jeremy. Let's or Jeremiah. Let's just see what happens. Now, this guy is called Love the Hunts. Might be a might be a gal too, but Love the Hunt asks this. Ron, why didn't the 338 Federal ever take off? It's a great round without huge recoil. Yeah, this is a similar question to the 6.8 Western. <laughs> what is it that makes one round go and the next one not? From the ballistic studies that I've done on this cartridge, I find that it does not do that much more than the 308 does to justify it. And it's not quite as versatile. And in the U.S., we're kind of 30 caliber crazies. Everybody's 30 caliber is the all-American cartridge. Think 30-30. And then 30 out six, and a 300 Savage, and a 308 Winchester. We just developed some of the best 30 calibers on the planet. And I think, especially because of the 30 out six military round, that became our baby. So, US hunters think 30. Now, you get into a 30 out six, and a lot of people start saying, ouch, there's more recoil than I like. Uncle Sam didn't think so in World War I and II because we were certainly using it. But uh, these days, hunters seem to think, yeah, I don't know for deer hunting if I need all that. And really, you don't. But then again, for elk hunting, they're thinking, I need a 300 Winchester Magnum. There's another crazy fan and popular 300. So we are a country of 30s, and the 308 Winchester is extremely popular. Official military round, NATO cartridge. And it will handle almost anything with minimal recoil. So the 338, same powder capacity, just a wider bullet. So you've got a little more energy in that bullet initially, but downrange with a high BC bullet in the 30, you're going to uh, get better performance downrange. Less drop, less wind deflection, more retained energy. But boy, out to about 300 yards, that 338 Federal really is a darn effective little cartridge. And I would have it if it weren't my only rifle. I come to think of it, I could even use it as an only rifle. But for elk, moose, and uh, deer, 
it's going to really do the job for you. So if you like a little larger diameter bullet, I certainly can't argue against it, but I don't think you're going to find any ammo for it. I don't know that anyone but Federal ever loaded for it. Nosler probably did some in its trophy line. So that makes it, mm. whereas the 308 Winchester, pff, you're going to find so many variable loads for that thing, you, you'll never shoot them all. So it just makes it a lot easier to go with the 308. But more power to you if you want that 338 Federal. It is a great round. Um, I think you better be a hand loader, though, and then you can really get the most out of it. But you're certainly right. It's, it's a great little round, short action, and no recoil. Right. Now we're hearing from Nicholas. Nicholas asks, hey, Ron, as a gun collector, I would love to know the answer to this one. How many rifles do you own? <laughs> Putting me on the spot here, Nicholas. Actually, I don't own that many. I think I'm what you would call a churner. John Barsness always talks about churners. These are rifle people who have a rifle for a year or two and uh, play around with it, work up loads and just love it. And then they get interested in something else. So instead of spending money and buying another one, they do a trade. Uh, they sell the old one off and they get a different one. We always keep a few basics around, you know, something in the 22 center fires and a 24 and a, and a 30 or a 7 or something. And then once in a while, a big bore. But we are churning. We're constantly playing around with new guns. And in addition, because of my position at some of these magazines where I write for, do reviews on guns and whatnot, I am constantly getting guns through here that I have to review. So unlike most folks, I am fortunate to be able to test different rifles and then return them, and I've had the experience without having to buy it. So I don't buy then that many rifles, and I don't collect them. Um, you know, I have a handful that are sort of pets that I won't let go, uh, and I have a couple that I'm hoping the, the grandkids will use um, and uh, sons-in-law will hunt with someday. They're starting to, and uh, that's encouraging, but I just don't have that many. I'm sure your collection dwarfs mine, but... Uh, that doesn't mean I don't think folks should collect because I think that's a fascinating hobby and can be a good investment if you get the right particular firearms. Some of them really increase in value. So more power to you if you're a collector and you know what you're doing. Um, as for me, I'm a churner. Now, this is uh, J-Red. J-Red asks, what are hunting regulations and licensing like around North America. J-Red J must be from somewhere else. Regulations are extremely strict here in the UK. Okay, he is in England. So I'd love to know what it's like where you hunt. Could you explore this topic in a future video? How about this one? <laughs> this future video is now, and oh boy, hunting regulations in North America. Let's narrow it down to the United States. Canada is fairly similar, but the thing is, every state is different. And what's really crazy when you look at the regulations, the differences between states don't seem to make a lot of sense. For instance, Iowa shotgun slug hunting only for white-tailed deer. Step across the line at Sioux City, just north of Sioux City, right on the line into South Dakota, you're blazing away with 270s, 7 rem mags or anything you want. I have never heard that the result of that was a, a significant decrease in the deer population in South Dakota or a significant increase in accidental shootings of anybody or any buildings or anything else. It's just not an issue. So 
why do they have this big difference? Similar with, say, Kansas. You get down into Kansas, not too far from Iowa. It's across the river, and uh, you can use rifles there. And I think you can in Nebraska, and that's right across the river. And then you go over to Illinois and uh, Indiana. Indiana's rifles, I think, yes. Indiana, you can hunt with centerfire rifles. Um, Illinois, I'm not real sure, but I think you can't. Ohio, shotgun or straight walled. So they're all over the map. So you're going to find a similar thing with calibers or cartridges. Some states will say you cannot hunt with anything smaller than a 24 caliber, like a 243 Winchester and up for for big game, deer, pronghorn, anything like that. Wyoming has that regulation. Step across the line into Montana, you can use a 22 Hornet for hunting antelope and deer and even elk. Same with Idaho. So there's differences in what you can use based on, I don't know what, why one state authority would think it's inadequate and the next one think it's not a problem. I don't know. Then there are all kinds of crazy regulations about seasons and season dates and openings. For instance, South Dakota, when I was a kid, pheasant season started at noon every day. Well, they had so many pheasants that no one needed to go out in the morning to hunt them. It had nothing to do with biology or taking too many birds or anything. It had to do with farmers not wanting to be pestered by hunters driving up in the morning when the farmers were doing their chores, taking care of the pigs and the cattle and the chickens and everything else. And here comes some guy saying, hey, is it okay if we hunt? Show me where your boundaries are and all this stuff. So so fish and game people just said, let's just make it easy on the farmers and say nobody can hunt pheasants till noon. And it worked fine because there were so many pheasants, it didn't take you but about an hour to get your limit. Well, things got a little tougher in the 70s and the habitat went to heck and the pheasants were pretty hard to come up with. So you had to put in a lot more than four hours to get a limit. So they pushed it back to 10 a.m. And by that time, a lot of the farmers weren't doing as much physical labor as they used to. There was a lot lot of mechanical devices to kind of save time and all. and, And a lot of them were just doing straight up grain and not having livestock. And so there wasn't quite as much kickback on that one. But that's some of the social pressure that creates some of the differences in the regulations. And then there are things like you cannot shoot does or females of any kind in some states, bucks only. In other ones, you can only shoot a buck with forked antler or more. Some places tried four points per side for whitetails. Um, and then you ended up with a bunch of dead deer in the field because the guy thought it was four points when he walked up to it after he shot it. It was three. <laughs> so he left it so he wouldn't get arrested. That didn't work out very well. Um, so I don't know what you've got over in the UK, but we have every kind of a regulation you can imagine over here. And it's really kind of mixed up. So you have to study. And what makes it particularly tough for a traveling hunter is keeping track of all that stuff. If you hunt several states a year, and a lot of us do, you've got to really bone up on these things because you'll remember the state you were just in, and it's different in the state you've just gone to, and you can get in trouble really quickly. So that's some of the confusing stuff that goes on with hunting regulations over here. The good news is that regardless how they play their regulations, most states seem to be able to manage good populations of their wildlife. It, it all comes down to habitat. Whenever there's a significant decrease in a population of anything, it's not because of the hunting regulations. It's not because somebody shot with too small or too big of a shotgun or rifle. It's almost always because 
the habitat's been wiped out. Big ag, I mean, you you take thousands and thousands of acres and you turn them all into a monocrop, you're not going to have cover there for wildlife. You turn it highways, waterways, cities, suburbs, expanding human populations. There's where our wildlife bites it. And uh, southeast quail population is the perfect example. It used to be just exploding with quail down there, and now they're virtually gone. Whereas some areas of Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas still have a lot of bobwhite quail. The habitat is still there. Down in the southeast, not so much. All right, I hope that answered some of your curiosity there. Now, this is from Jeff, and Jeff says, I love your content. It reminds me of the articles I used to read in Sports Afield in the 1960s. Boy, that really dates me. <laughs> no, I'll take that as a compliment because I liked reading Sports Afield in the 60s myself. I recently was looking at some ammo in my collection, and I came across a few rounds of 30 Remington. I don't know where these came from, and I own no rifles chambered for this round. However, I'm unfamiliar with it. Can you shed some light on this cartridge? The 30 Remington was created for the for the Remington Model 8 auto-loading rifle. And it's fairly unknown these days, but it was fairly popular back in the early 1900s. I think it came out in 1908. And there were several other ones along that, on that same basic case design. And it didn't go far. Uh, I don't know how many other rifles it was ever loaded for. It might have been put into some of the lever actions like a Marlin. But it really didn't do anything that the uh, 3030 didn't do. And that was pretty well set by then. And everybody stuck with it. And the 30 Remington eh, just sort of languished. But if I remember right, it was used by Frank Hamer, who took out Bonnie and Clyde in that shootout. He had a Remington 8, and I'm pretty sure it was in a 30 Remington. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of where, where it got its most fame. <laughs> Not as a hunting round, but as a law enforcement round. So that's uh, basically it. It just, just did not drive a big heavy cartridge or bullet. It did not drive a big heavy bullet and very fast. So it's not what you would call an ideal deer hunting round for much of anything. But folks who have it and use it, you know, inside of 150 yards, I think they do just fine with it. All right, this is Howie, and Howie asks, hey, Ron, I'm curious to know your thoughts on using the flat spot method of load development. Ah, loading 10 or more shots or cartridges with incrementally increasing charge weights, and then the spot where that velocity doesn't increase over about three shots is considered the flat spot, and your accuracy charge is found therein. Does that sound right? Yeah, Howie, you are on it. Um, this is also known as the ladder test or the node way to find accuracy. You're looking for your accuracy node in a particular rifle. And there's a lot of debate about this, whether it's valid or not, but plenty of people swear by it. And here's how the, the whole program is supposed to work. So you uh, are working up your loads with a little bit more powder each time. Obviously, you want to be testing that for velocity and then pressure signs because you don't want to go with too much pressure. So follow the recipes in the book. But instead of shooting, say, three to five shots at 100 yards with 50 grains of powder and then shooting another three to five with 51 grains of powder and then another with 52 grains of powder, you're loading and shooting and loading and shooting and trying to figure out which ones are going to group the best. What's going to happen with your barrel 
is that at a certain pressure wave going down the barrel, the oscillations, the vibrations, or as somebody once said, it's sort of like a donut going down the barrel. So this pressure wave is pushing down the barrel in the steel, and it literally moves, if you can imagine a steel barrel enlarging and shrinking behind the bullet and stuff. And this wave comes out the end. Is the barrel, some will say, whipping? So it might be up and down or side to side, but if you've got the barrel just at that split second where it stops and the bullet emerges consistently, every time you shoot that same load with that same velocity, that same donut pressure wave is going through it, and it all comes out when the barrel is stopped between an oscillation extreme right or left or up or down. And there's your accuracy. Oh, Whether or not it actually works that way, eh, that's where the debate comes in. But way to test it is by building your loads up. Some say 0.2 grain difference between them. Some say 0.1 if you want to really fine tune it. Some will go as far as 0.5 just to get the feel for where their accuracy is. But here's the idea. Let's say you're looking in your hand loading manual and it says the first load you want to start with, make sure there's no pressure problems or everything. Let's make it 49 grains. And then they start working their way up with that powder. 49 grains, 49 and a half, 50, 50 and a half, 51. You just load each one of those right on up through the scale. And guys will generally do about 10 of them. And you want to probably do it, as I said, with 0.2 difference. So one would be 49, then it would be 49.2 grains, 49.4 grains, 49.5 grains or six grains. Depending on how you want to do it, one, two, three grains at a time. Work your way up. You've got all those loads sitting on your bench and you're out shooting. Your target ideally should be at 300 yards because you want to start to see some difference in where these things are landing. And at 100, they're all clustered a little too tight. So that makes it a little tough for folks. The idea, though, then is at 300 yards, you aim dead center on the target every time. You shoot once and you mark that bullet hole. There's a lot of walking involved here unless you've got a good spotting scope and another target right at your bench and you can make a mark at the same spot and then write down, this was my 49 grain load. Your next load, 49.2 grains, ends up a half inch higher maybe. You write that one down and you're going up the ladder. Each shot probably is going to land a little higher and then all of a sudden you're going to notice shot number, say, four, five, and six all land pretty much in the same place. That's your flat spot. That's your node of accuracy. Then after that, they start spreading out again and climbing. You know that if you have, let's say it's 50 grains, and you say, I'm going to take a 50-grain load because if it's 50.2, it's still landing in the same spot or awfully close to it. And if it's 50 or it's 49.8, it's still landing in the same spot. So as I'm building my hand loads and I'm pouring my powder in, if I'm off by a grain or two in the weight, it's not going to affect my accuracy because that's the node at which my accuracy absorbs those differences. If you're lucky, your rifle might make it at 0.5 grains per. So you could go 49.5 and then all the way up to 50 and anywhere in there, if you're off a little bit, by a tenth of a grain here or there, or even three or four, you're still going to be accurate land in the same place. So you found your accuracy with only 10 shots instead of three shots and three shots and three shots and three shots with each one of those powder doses. It's, uh, I think, a pretty valid way of f- figuring out fairly quickly. Now, this depends on having an accurate rifle. 
And if you have a rifle that will not group anything better than two inches, you're never going to figure it out. You've got to have a pretty good MOA or better grouping rifle before that starts to make sense. But the idea then is to find that flat spot, that node where the vibrations are minimal and a variation in your powder charge is not going to result in a big variation in your precision shooting where those shots land. I think it's worth a try. The latter test. Do some research, Google it, and you'll find variations on the theme from a lot of different folks and different explanations of what's actually going on in the barrel. Some will call it barrel whip. Some oscillations and vibrations, some with that little donut pressure wave going down it, but it all amounts to the same thing. Most barrels are going to have a spot at which you're going to be accurate whether you're off a few grains or not. So there you go. That is the flat spot ladder test, Howie. I hope it made sense. And if I got it all wrong, you guys are, of course, welcome to write in and straighten me out. Those are the questions for the day. We went a little bit long, but I appreciate your patience and tuning in. Once again, we thank all of our patrons for supporting us. We really appreciate that. If you would like to join our Patreon community, just check here. We should probably have a link either on here or in the information below. I'm not sure how all of this works, but boy, go to patreon.com, Ron Spomer Outdoors, and join up. You get special treats like... Early access to my videos, access to RSO TV. I think we even give a discount at the RSO store. We have a newsletter for you folks, and we answer all of your questions and invite you to tell us what you would like to see on our next videos on YouTube. Thanks for tuning in. Ron Spomer signing off. Hunt honest and shoot straight. <laughs>